Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program brought to you by Radio New Zealand Sport. On this week's show, the all-black Ali Williams announces his retirement from international rugby. We chat with the new coach of the Phoenix, Ernie Merrick, while the Warriors chief executive, Wayne Scurra, goes into damage control mode. The head of Team New Zealand, Grant Dalton, has his first sailing practice in San Francisco Bay, and golfer Greg Turner has his first match on the Champions Tour. We preview the July BMX World Championships in Auckland and get a basketball lesson from the Harlem Globetrotters. The 11-year, 77-test career of the all-black lock Ali Williams has come to an end. Williams announced his retirement on Friday, saying there was no single reason behind his decision, but rather he simply felt the time was right. Stephen Hewson reports. Ali Williams played his first test against England in 2002, but his career has been plagued by injury, including two major Achilles operations. With young up-and-coming locks Sam Whitelock, Luke Romano and Brodie Ritalik now on the test scene, the 32-year-old no doubt sensed his time was limited, but is looking forward to making the Blues his rugby priority. I'd love to give an answer and say this is the exact reason, but there's a lot of reasons. I'm having a lot of fun at the Blues. I think it's, it's a new challenge for me, so if I'm going to do that 100% then maybe I might not give something else 100%. And it's just things like that that go through your brain and it's hard, but it is what it is. Ali Williams was part of the All Blacks' wider training squad that was in a three-day camp in Mount Monganui earlier this week. But it doesn't appear All Blacks coach Steve Hansen gave him any hint that his time was up. In fact, far from it. He's come back twice from career-ending injuries. He's given a lot to the team. I think the last couple of years, what he's given... Uh, has been underestimated. We've had young guys, not a lot of experience uh, in the front line and he's been in the back room helping those guys grow. So whilst he's been a great player, he's also been a good leader and and to make a decision to walk away from it uh, when he's had a fairly good idea that he he would have probably been been picked. There's a courageous one. The former All Blacks winger and now Blues coach Sir John Kerwin endorsed Steve Hansen's comments that Williams was underrated at test level. While he probably can't see it now, you know, he'll go down as one of the greats. Hard for him to articulate a lot of the things now, but when he's an old bugger like us sitting here, he'll look back and be incredibly proud of what he's achieved in that jersey. Kerwin also confessed to being happy at Williams' retirement from the All Blacks. I get to profit. He's been outstanding for the Blues. He loves the, the region and he wants to help us get back on top. So, yeah, I want Ali as long as he wants to stay. The greatest attribute that Ali Williams has is he's prepared to look in the mirror, um, take on advice and change. And that's pretty hard for all of us. Williams also had to spend a lot of time in front of the mirror ahead of his test debut against England. I remember it because I thought, how the hell am I going to do a hucker? It scared the life out of me, and um, but a quality time in front of the mirror. I got the actions down packed and... Some people would suggest that I probably should still still be in front of the mirror when I'm doing it. The public perception of Ali Williams is that he's a practical joker, but Steve Hansen says that's not the case. That's not the real Ali, and deep down he cares a lot. Once you get past all the, dare I say it, bullshit and chatter, 
you get the real bloke, and uh, the real bloke's pretty special fella. Steve Hansen believes Ali Williams has plenty of potential to move into the coaching ranks, saying he's passionate about the game and has the right people skills. The only question marks hang over whether he has the patience required and whether or not he can put up with the politics involved. Stephen Hewson reporting for Extra Time. The former coach of the Melbourne Victory, Ernie Merrick, has been appointed the new head coach of the Wellington Phoenix on a two-year deal. The 60-year-old Scotsman led the victory to two A-League titles, but more recently has been coach of the Hong Kong national side. The Phoenix finished bottom of the competition this season, and there were 300 applicants to replace the former coach, Ricky Herbert. Stephen Hewson asked Merrick what attracted him to New Zealand. I feel as though there's a lot of good footballers over here, and uh, the new board, the Wellnix board and owners of Phoenix, to me they've, they've got a long and short term plan in place and, and they're keen on developing young talent as, as well as the players they have in the squad uh, at the moment and uh, my background is developing young players plus having success in the A-League so it just seemed to tick all the boxes. You've got your task cut out given last season's performance, where, where do you start? Pre-season is, uh, is, is crucial, not so much for the fitness, which is a you know, given. Everyone's got to get high-level fitness, but it's crucial for establishing the way you want to play, defensively and offensively, and uh, all the players knowing what the specific roles are and uh, coping with performing those roles under extreme pressure and fatigue, which is what high-performance sport's about. So, practices trainings your style your approach there is what it's uh, it's about the practices are, are ball centered game scenario type practices uh, in areas of the pitch that are specific to that particular strategy and it's about being very uh, organized and disciplined and winning the ball in all areas of the field uh, collectively as a team and that's a job that everyone has to take on board. And when you win the ball, it's been pretty creative in keeping possession of the ball to set up goal-scoring opportunities. And the game is really quite simple, but it's amazing uh, the number of teams that sort of get close to the goals and then they take a cheap shooting option or a, give a bad pass or a long cross. I like to be very specific in setting up goal-scoring opportunities. You've made comments too that you want to play any style of, of, yeah. of football, can you do that with the, the squad that's there already? I have no doubt, but it would help if we, we bring in a couple of good quality midfielders and maybe another striker, because that transition from defence to attack is crucial, and unless you've got very clever, good quality, creative players, it won't happen overnight. Uh, it'll be developed, but I want it to happen faster than that. I think Carlos Hernandez is a good good signing there, and certainly Vince Lea or Manny Musket can play a good defensive role in there, but we need uh, attacking creative midfielders so that we can go from the back four to the front third and create goal-scoring chances quickly. Do you need to shore up the defence as well? Well, there's no doubt the, the whole team need to improve. We, we've conceded uh, too many goals and we haven't scored enough goals which is similar problems with all teams but at the bottom of the league it's highlighted so uh, probably need to look at uh, strengthening the back line but I have to say you know, Ben Sigmund and, and Andy Durante are rock solid defenders and Glenn Moss a very good goalkeeper as I say Manny Musket where he plays defensive midfield or right back is, is strong Philosophically what approach do you think that the side needs to 
to, to take? Uh, you, you've made comments about being able to, to learn to win. Yeah, I, I, everyone talks about possession football, which I've said to you, well, that's crucial. You can't win anything without controlling the ball. Um, it's the, the thing about possession football is being in key areas, so the possession turns to goal-scoring opportunities. But on top of that, the big difference I find with teams is their mental approach, their mental toughness, whether they're battle-hardened or whether they, they, um, they take a backward step under pressure or when a goal goes down. They used to say uh, teams used to worry about Manchester United when, they, when Manchester United concede a goal because they used to say, oh, now we're in trouble, we've scored against them. And the, the, that, I'm trying to give an example of that sort of mentality is that you know that Manchester United is never going to let up and that's why they're one of the best teams in the world. I'm, I'm nothing like a coach of Man United, don't get me wrong, I'm not drawing parallels. What I'm saying is there's an attitude that we're going out to win, and a draw is not good enough. We want three points in every match, not just make this a fortress. This is, yes, make it a fortress, but make a fortress in every other ground as well. We are a team that are a force rather than a fortress, and we want to score goals and we want to win games. Winning away has obviously been a big problem for the, for the Phoenix. That presumably is an area that needs to change and an area that, if you can change it, is going to bring dividends. I, I think that would bring major dividends. Um, this, this team probably travel more than any team in the world in a domestic competition and we have to put in strategies whether it be you know, sports medicine, uh, look at uh, compression wear and, and fluid levels and not taking caffeine and sleeping certain hours but we have, to, we have to look into all of those aspects of travel and then we have to take that excuse away or oh, we travelled, uh, get rid of that excuse and move on and uh, the other problems associated with FIFA dates aren't respected by the FFA, so there'll be times when a large number of players will not be available because they're playing for New Zealand, as they should. So we have to work probably with a larger squad. Timing. Are you going to be rushed in getting your squad together, getting your signings done? Yeah, I'm the last coach appointed, so yes, and there are players going, so I have to get onto it straight away. I need to find out what the budget is. We have to make a decision on some of the players that are in flux. They don't know if they're here or there. But we'll do that, we'll move as quickly as we can and we'll let people know and we'll target players and we'll get some of them, we'll get others. But in the past, uh, I've never ever revealed who I've chased until we've actually got a signing on the, the, the paper, on the contract. But uh, at the moment, um, it's really about sorting out the existing squad, of which I believe 15 are already signed. That was the new coach of the Phoenix, Ernie Merrick, speaking with Stephen Hewson. The Warriors have gone into damage control mode following their embarrassing National Rugby League loss to the Penrith Panthers. The 62-6 mauling was the Warriors' biggest defeat in their 18-year history, leaving them at the bottom of the ladder with only two wins from 10 matches. The thrashing outraged a number of the club's fans, who took to social media to vent their frustrations, with many calling for the removal of the new coach, Matt Elliott. However, the club's chief executive, Wayne Scurra, made it clear that Elliott's position is safe. He spoke to Alex Coogan-Reeves about that and the Warriors' emergency meeting following concerns about some of the players' carefree demeanour after the Penrith match. I'm not going to go into details, but we um, we uh, organised a, a meeting with uh, all of the team and all of the squad who didn't travel. Um, immediately, um, the, the NRL team arrived back um, yesterday. So, yes, we did have a meeting. Would that be normal for you to call players in on a Sunday for, after a Saturday game like that? For a meeting like that? No, I mean, and, and clearly, um, all of our members and our sponsors and our fans uh, 
were uh, very, very disappointed with the result, um, and uh, you know, so were we. And um, I've got to say, there was no one more shattered than um, the players. And uh, we felt it really important to address the matter, address the, the performance, um, and and the reports uh, about the uh, um, on-field uh, imagery that everyone saw. Um, so we wanted to address that um, outside of the working week because the bottom line is we've got to turn this around immediately. Did the players agree or that it wasn't a good look when you spoke to them about it? Oh, I think most people would um, agree it was perhaps a, um, being a little bit naive in terms of the body language was there because they clearly uh, were not smiling about the result um, and, and, it, and you know it's been portrayed that way and that's there is no one that cares more than the players in the club. I mean, they love the club and they're committed to the club being successful and uh, they um, are as embarrassed uh, as all of us with the results on the field and certainly um, you know, what's been reported about uh, the way they looked on the field um, that was nothing to do with how they felt about um, the performance and the result. Right, and then did you give them any sort of other message about think things that may need to change or um, moving forward in the season? Uh, really, we just strengthened um, our resolve and our commitment to get it right. I mean, uh, I don't think many people saw uh, that uh, result coming on Saturday night, and we, you know, we felt we'd been working very, very hard, and, and there was some consistent improvement, and uh, with more players coming back from injury, um, you know, we were looking forward to a, a really. Uh, good result on uh, Saturday night and uh, as I said no one's more devastated than the players and everyone in the club and uh, we owe it to our supporters to uh, turn it around and uh, we're absolutely committed to doing that. It's almost inevitable that after a result like that there's going to be uh, lots of fans and uh, people from the media calling for different sorts of change. Um, Matt Elliott, have you spoken with him or is there any sort of, um, is his job safe at this stage? Um you know, we're all responsible and we've all got to take um, uh, accountability. Uh, you know, we're paid um, by the owners and, and by the board um, to perform and um, Matt knows that, I, I know that and uh, what we've done with Matt is expressed our total support of him. I mean, at the end of the day, he's been in the job for 10 weeks. Um, he's come in relatively late um, in, in organising the pre-season and he's, uh, he's inherited the majority of the squad that he's had to start with um, and he's wanting to implement a number of changes. Um, some have been occurring um, and some are still to occur and he's got to be given time and he's, you know, he's got our total support in being able to do that and uh, he handled himself really well um, after this uh, and, um, and you know, his resolve is stronger than ever as well. Obviously he's trying to make changes should we expect to see a Warriors squad that looks quite different next season with the work that's going on behind the scenes there? Well, uh, invariably the squad changes every year. I mean, some people um, choose to go and some people um, um, are let go. And, um, you know, every coach is charged with trying to make each year's squad better than the past year's. And, uh, um, you know, Matt's got plenty of talent to work here, uh, with here and we've got a, you know, a great bunch of guys. But... Bottom line is um, them and us are going to be measured on the results. Um, you know, not how, not how nice people are, and we've you know we've got to get results. And and do you think um, with the results, if they continue the way they have been, has the precedent been set uh, last year with the way Brian McLennan was let go, that if if they can't pick up performances and 
perform better that the coach is going to be deemed to be responsible? Yeah, as I said, Matt's got our total support and uh, we've only got one focus and that's um, improving the results and, and getting uh, what we uh, need to and what we should do out of, out of the squad and um, you know delivering results on the field that um, everyone uh, is really happy with and um, supportive of the club about. All right, so yeah, at this stage, you're still fully in support and there, there hasn't been any sort of conversation. Yeah, as I said, Matt's got our total support. That was the Warriors Chief Executive Wayne Scurra talking to Alex Coogan-Reeves for extra time. The head of Team New Zealand, Grant Dalton, says he's delighted with the performance of his boat after its first practice on the America's Cup circuit in San Francisco Bay. It was Team New Zealand's first outing on an America's Cup course in six years, but Dalton says his crew was mindful of the accident there two weeks ago, which claimed the life of Artemis sailor Andrew Simpson. In the wake of the tragedy, race organisers have proposed new rules for the competition, which Dalton told Barry Guy the four competing teams are likely to endorse. They need the approval of the teams to do that, just the way the rules are written um, and the liability. So I think there's a bit of water to go under the bridge yet, because you've basically got to get all the teams to agree. But in saying that, fundamentally what they're proposing is good. So other than a little tweak here and there, and, we, and really this just happened less than 24 hours ago, so now we need to talk to them and hopefully meet with them later this afternoon now we're in from sailing but in principle we're reasonably happy. I'm led to believe that the lowering of the wind limit at the high end perhaps doesn't help you that much because your boat was capable of competing in in most winds is that the case? Well first of all the wind limit for the cup of 33 knots was a ridiculous number and it was only a matter of time before somebody woke up and realised that it was a ridiculous number so we on our own, couldn't do anything about it, but we never expected to be racing in those sort of breeze. I mean, you can't even lift your wing in that amount of wind, let alone go sailing in it. So although it's dropped 10 knots, in our mind, it's nothing like as dramatic as that. You know, there's a bit of discussion to go on, but the numbers are not far away now. It depends a little bit on what the tide's doing here. And as I say, we just need to talk to them. And, and, and in the end, all the teams have to agree for it to be adopted. It's only 18 hours old now that this came up. So we wanted to talk to them again probably later this afternoon. Do you have any sticking points? I think I want to see what the other teams do first. Sticking points, no. Possible areas of negotiation, yes. But in principle, we're pretty comfortable. On to sailing today. Congratulations, I suppose. It's uh, been a long time coming. It certainly has been a long time coming. I mean, six years since Emirates Team New Zealand has had to survive has been able to train and sail on an America's Cup venue with the billionaires having their little scraps. Yeah, it was a really significant day and there's a real lift in the teams and that's really started when we got here and it hasn't diminished at all. It was neat. You know, I've had this picture in my mind now for a while of of Hyper falling down across the face of the uh, Golden Gate Bridge and then down towards Alcatraz on a perfect summers or early summer San Francisco day and it was that day to day. And it happened, and it all went perfectly. So, yeah, just another step, but also you want to mark the good days because enough days that aren't that good, but you want to mark the good days. Today was a good day. It's not that long to go, though. Are you comfortable? Oh, no, I'm a sportsman. You're never comfortable. <laughs> but I think we're in pretty good shape relative to our opposition at this point. We've got to keep developing. We'll park today. This was just to get the boat back in the water, make everything sure all the systems work. Tomorrow we're into hard training again. Well, I felt a bit like hard training on board there today because we haven't sailed for a while.
Uh, no, we're never comfortable. We'll never be comfortable. What, what is the general feeling then uh, in light of what's happened in the last two weeks? Is it still difficult? Be fair, the guys are very mindful of what happened. That will never pass. I mean, that will last a lifetime, one of our own. But we all knew that the best tonic for us, like so often happens in these cases, to get back on the water. And that happened today, and it was a great hit out. Three hours wasn't super long, but it was a great hit out, and everything went perfectly. So that helps. You know, any nervousness you might feel that is created by this environment that we've been in over the last few weeks, it instantly disappears, and you feel like you're back in Auckland sailing in the Gulf. It's a bit like in the early spring, because it's actually quite cold out there. But no, once we got 10 minutes into it, any nerves that might have been there, I'm not sure there were any, but if there were, they were soon gone and we were just back to what we do, process focus. So you have been back here sailing. Is it now just a matter of getting used to and dealing with the best conditions in San Francisco Bay? Yeah, we've got a lot of work to do to understand this place properly. It's like the tide pouring out of Lake Pupuki, with tide here and not there and some over there and an eddy over here, and it swirls around Alcatraz. And I hope those guys jumped in the water at the right time when they escaped because it just is a nasty place. So we have to understand that. And we don't, I mean, we've got a feel for it, but we won't, we can't be as good as Oracle in that, in their home waters yet because we haven't been there enough. And that's a really something we've got to, you know, spend a lot of time on. So your training, this is just with a single boat over the next few weeks or are you going to involve others? How does that work? Well, we're primarily trained by ourselves and we'll sail uh, with Prada a little bit, so but no plans, even if they wanted to, and it may not anyway, to come up with Oracle. They'll be around on the course, but that's as far as it will go for us. So we, I, I think a little bit of racing coming up with us in Prada, but mainly we've just got to start to understand the venue. Finally, one last one about Artemis. What's their situation and, and how are they coping? Well, they say they're still in the event. They've got a boat they've got to put together, and, well, they haven't got a wing that works at the moment, so they're a way away. I think the event will start on time, I feel, for it, July the 7th, but Artemis is not going to be there, not at that point anyway. They're a month away, at least, and I don't even know exactly what point they're at. So they say they're in, they say they're working on it. They were certainly fairly vocal on these changes yesterday, and I look forward to seeing them on the water as soon as we can. That was the head of Team New Zealand, Grant Dalton, speaking with Barry Guy. Ten years after retiring from professional golf, New Zealand's Greg Turner has this week made his debut on the Senior US PGA Tour. The 50-year-old from Otago is competing in the Senior PGA Championship in St. Louis, Missouri, where he carted a three-over par 74 in the opening round. At his peak in the 1980s and 90s, Turner won four times on the European Tour and five times on the PGA Tour of Australasia, as well as tying for seventh at the 1996 Open Championship. Turner told Stephen Hewson he never planned to return to golf after retirement. It's been an interesting week, sort of right back in the deep end, but I'm really enjoying it. It's a big tournament here. I hadn't quite realised the extent of this. You know, they're sort of expecting 100,000 people for the week. It's got the set up of a major championship. And you know, I've been seeing a lot of people I haven't seen in 10 years. It's interesting. I'm enjoying it, but it's Wednesday. So uh, we'll see how things go tomorrow. Are you feeling a young lad amongst the rest of the field? <laughs> Right. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't ever, ever contemplated the idea of being a youngster. But yeah, no, I, I am. I'm a rookie. I'm back to being a rookie. So, um, well, you know, most of the guys here I know, you know, reasonably well. I played with for 20 years. So, albeit that you know, I'm at the younger end of the scale, obviously, in an over 50s event, 
it kind of feels like a bit of a coming home in some ways. Ten years ago when you sort of officially retired, did you ever see yourself moving on to this tour? No, not at all. Um, it wasn't something that was part of the plan or, or part of any consideration. But, um, you know, this is a relatively new contemplation for me and um, I'm not planning to play full-time or anything like it. So it's a bit of a novelty in that sense. So what got you back to the point of saying, yes, I, I want to play at this level? Look, it was, it was circumstance, really. It was a quiet period coming into this winter, you know, in the business sense. You know, I'd been around a few of the guys, old mates, Peter Fowler and the like, who played a little bit with when they were down here, and they were sort of saying to me, you know, hey, man, your game's really in pretty good shape. What about thinking about seniors? And um, it hadn't occurred to me. You know, it seemed like the game was, you know, maybe it was worth investigating and then I played a couple of events in New Zealand and, and was pleasantly surprised by the fact that my game was you know still reasonably competitive and you know of course tomorrow's a, a new day you know what golf's like but um but you know I haven't felt outmatched at all this week the game does feel like it's in reasonably good standard I don't feel like I can't compete at all. Now you said you're not planning on making a sort of a full-time comeback to the to the tour how many tournaments do you see yourself playing? Well, it's subordinate to what else I'm doing. The design business is first and foremost, and you know I'm really pleased to be involved in um, uh, tourism initiative with Tourism New Zealand. You know, if I can play a little bit in and around that, then I'll do that. If I start playing well, then I might play a little bit more. But I don't envisage that'll be more than you know six or eight, ten tournaments a year maximum at the moment. Let's play it by year. How, how do you rate your game? You, you said you, you feel competitive. I mean, if we're trying to maybe draw a comparison to, to where you were at when you officially retired. To be honest, I'm hitting it further than I was 10 years ago and I stopped now. <laughs> I suspect that technology might mm. have um, a little bit to do with that. Although, um, relatively speaking, I'm probably longer than I used to be. And the short game, certainly in practice, has been really sharp. So um, we'll see. It's a different thing when the gun goes off. But um, I don't feel like my game's in bad shape. You know, how, how I can deal mentally with standing up there in front of tens of thousands of people with those peculiar pressures. Time will tell. Has it possibly rejuvenated you a little, or have you sensed the enjoyment might even be a little bit more than you anticipated it might be? <laughs> look, anyway, I'll reserve judgment. It's Wednesday, <laughs> but no, look, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed meeting some people that I haven't seen in a long time. You know, you run into the likes of the Bernard Langers and and the Tom Watsons, and uh, and you'll think, well, yeah, they won't probably remember me, and not only do that, but you know, real, real warmth and affection. And then you realise, well, actually, I did play with them for 20 years. So the fact that you've sort of been away for, for 10, you know, they're, they're pleased to see you. And um, there's a genuine camaraderie about it but um, that I'd, I've kind of missed a little bit, I suppose. And that's been, been warming, you know, as a consequence. They're, 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 they're rejuvenated. But I've enjoyed it a lot more than I perhaps thought I might. That was Greg Turner talking to Stephen Hewson. Tickets went on sale this week for the BMX World Championships, which are being held in late July on a specially built indoor track at Auckland's Vector Arena. New Zealand's tasted BMX success at Olympic level, with Sarah Walker winning silver at the Beijing Games in 2008. But the former world champion's now in a race against time to be fit for this year's Worlds after shoulder surgery. Our reporter Richard Wayne caught up with Walker and some up-and-coming riders at the launch of a new BMX based on Walker's bike from the London Olympics. I'm at the North Harbour BMX track where some of New Zealand's top riders are unveiling the new Avanti prototype which they'll be racing at the World Championships at Victor Arena in July. 
Talia Hansen, former world champion. I think you're racing the 16-year women's class, is that right? Yeah, 16 girls for the world champs this year. And did you win the nationals at Cambridge? Uh, yeah, took away first place for the seventh time. Seventh time, that's impressive. How, oh, what makes you so fast? Just all I do is train and obviously I do some schoolwork as well. Just want to be the Olympic gold medalist. The world at the moment, I'm number two. So just a little bit more training and I reckon I'll be at the top. I'm with Max McCready. What age group are you racing? I'm in the 16 boys at the moment, so next year I go into junior elite. That's you know leading on to the big World Cup stage. How many hours do you put into this every week? Um, I'm training two times a day, you know, in the gym in the morning, and then I'm down the track in the afternoon, or I'm doing sprints on my driveway. What kind of gym work do you do for BMX? It's a lot of plyometric stuff, so explosive strength, you know, squat jumps and that kind of stuff. Because it's all about that first straight, that first corner being in first place at that point, isn't it? Yeah, you want to get out of the gate real quick and get that whole shot, you know. It's yeah. easier to lead from the front. New Zealand's got a pretty proud history of world champions, hasn't it? I mean, we've got Rico Beerman at the moment, obviously Sarah and, and Tali have won world championships. What do you think makes New Zealanders pretty decent at BMX? We've got a good support programme here, you know. We've got good tracks and, you know, a lot of year-round riding. We've got a high level of competition as well. I just reckon New Zealand BMXs are just very dedicated we just we just love to train and ride and get air. How big is it that New Zealand's hosting the Worlds in July, do you reckon? I reckon it's great for New Zealand. We haven't held a big competition like this before. It's going to draw a lot of people, I think. Oh, it's huge. Like, so stoked. And there's heaps of people coming back into the sport. Heaps of new riders as well. You know, it's really good for the sport. Alongside World Champs, we've now got the Olympics. That's really transformed the sport as well, hasn't it? Yeah, it's just lifted it to a whole nother game, you know. Heaps of members flooding after the Olympics and it's just another great spectacle for the sport. Oh, it's definitely made great difference on the sport. Since Beijing, the sport has just increased majorly. More people knowing about the sport, more on the TV and on the radio and all that sort of stuff and it's just been, been great. It's a great television sport, isn't it? Yeah, it's really good spectator sport. There's always something going on. You know, it's fast-paced, it's action, there's crashes. It's what people want to see. Now, what, you've got this device around your neck. Is that some sort of safety bracket? Um, this is a Liart neck brace, and it uh, restricts your movement from your head so you don't hyperextend and break your neck. Just another one of the pieces of safety equipment that is around these days. How dangerous do you think BMX is? It's not dangerous if you stay on your bike. That's the problem, though. You know, there's racing, you'll have crashes, you'll lose skin, you'll break bones, but... With any other extreme sports, it's like that. And the new bike, stiff, fast, good? Yeah, that's the way that all the bikes are going, you know. Stiff is fast. You want to get that you know, 0.01 of a second. It's all it can be in a race. Technology's developed, the bike's developed, and that's what Avanti have done as well. They've taken it one step further with the stiff bottom bracket and big chainstay. Just makes it a whole lot stiffer. Sarah Walker, you tweeted this week that you're excited that the tickets went on sale yep. for the World Champs. How big a deal is this for the country and for the sport? Uh, <laughs> massive, huge. <laughs> like, it's going to be amazing. I'm so excited to bring the sport down under here and to New Zealand and have the Worlds in our country and give the opportunity to these, these guys like Talia and Max to have them put on a show for the rest of the world as well. It's not just me that rides BMX in New Zealand. There's like 800 riders going to the World Champs. How important could the home advantage be? I mean, I used to race BMX back in the 80s before you were born. <laughs> the Nationals were held on my home track in Blenheim in 1987, oh, wow. yep. and that was a huge bonus for me because I could practice on it every day. Yep. But this is, of course, a newly constructed track yeah. inside Victor Arena. So they don't build it until the week of Worlds, and you don't actually get to ride it until everyone else in the world rides it anyway. So there's no advantage when it comes to the track. 
the whole advantage of a home world is that you've got the support and you've got the crowd screaming for you and well, it could easily be a, a disadvantage as it showed for Sinead Reid who was the British girl competing in London like she was just shaking on the gate so I'd like to think that I've done enough sports psych work to handle that pressure. How do you rate your chances of another world championship title? Oh, to be honest I had no chance whatsoever to start with because before I got my surgery, so after the Olympics, I had to sit down and decide whether to get surgery or not. And at the end of the day, I was going to need it in the next four years anyway. So I sat down and I said, what's the big goal in the next four years? Well, that's to win in Rio. I had to decide between affecting my Olympic build-up or affecting world champs. And Olympics trumps world champs, even though it's in New Zealand. So <laughs> I, I kind of knew it was going to affect world champs, but I've been on my bike for eight weeks and achieved everything I wanted to achieve by the end of the year, I'd already achieved that after five weeks. So it's a huge unknown what to the eight, next eight weeks will be. I don't really have expectations anymore because <laughs> I just have no idea. Every week I'm just making huge gains. It's just a complete unknown. What are you doing in between here and the World Champs? Are you racing at all? I used to leave for the States on Sunday for six weeks racing over there just doing four races over the six weeks and then I'm there and because I haven't competed since the Olympics so <laughs> figured I might as well get some racing in and there will be world class riders there. Right now my goal is now to make the final at Worlds before my surgery it was just to be at Worlds so who knows maybe in another four weeks time it'll be to be on the podium and another four weeks from there it'll be maybe to be on the top dice so just working away and all I can do is train as hard as I can in the next eight weeks and see where that takes me. Richard Wayne reporting for Extra Time. They've played basketball in Jerusalem, Africa, Iraq and even in bull arenas, empty swimming pools, aircraft carriers and now they're here to play in New Zealand. For nearly 90 years, the Harlem Globetrotters have combined theatre, comedy and basketball in more than 20,000 exhibition games in 120 countries. Our reporter May Yo hung out with two of the Globetrotters' stars. If my calculations are right, And he shoots it off the glass, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I don't have to look at it. That was Scooter. Shooting backwards is one thing Shane Scooter Christensen and Herbert Flight Time Lang know how to do well. The pair, firmly known by their nicknames, are experts at entertaining crowds of up to 25,000 people with their tricks during their basketball games. Like most of the Harlem Globetrotters team, both of them started playing basketball from a young age in America. And while most of those kids dreamt of playing for the NBA, Flight Time says he gets opportunities no other team gets. We go places that other teams do not go. There's not a lot of professional basketball jobs around the world, but there's a lot of people who want to play professional basketball. So when the Globetrotters provided me with an opportunity to uh, entertain people, play basketball and have fun at the same time, there was nothing else for me to do except, you know, play for the Harlem Globetrotters. They've come to New Zealand first to visit schools all around the country, with the remaining eight team members arriving in the weekend. Scooter says he wants to try and pass on the joy that basketball brings to him to other children. I think that's the best part of our job is that, you know, we're known as the ambassadors of goodwill. So what you see on the court is only a small percentage of what we do off the court. You know, we visit schools, hospitals. We have a, a, a smile patrol program. If those sick kids can't get out of bed, we go to them and just make them smile. The children from Wadestown School loved watching the boys perform. I like when um, they did all sorts 
of tricks and stuff. He um, didn't catch it without looking, it just landed on his head. I like it when he rolled the ball around in the arm lots of times. Flight time and Scooter say it's more than tricks in basketball though, as they try and pass on other messages like anti-bullying and the importance of working hard while with the children. The Harlem Globetrotters play in seven different cities while in New Zealand, starting with Auckland on Saturday. This is May Yo. That's extra time for this week. You can send your feedback to sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Ben Robinson. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.